This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 247, Parties. I am Hal Hammonds, Citizen of Heaven, your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for listening, rating, and subscribing. It's that time once again. Christmas, New Year's Eve, the college football playoffs, fun, food, and fellowship in abundance. Truly, it's the most wonderful time of the year. This week, we'll discuss the parties that get a bit too festive, political parties and whether they are really necessary, the party spirit that dominates far too many churches today, and a game we break out at parties that will leave you wondering where in the world you are. We'll start with what I've been preaching. When I was growing up, Bible class teachers used to love reading from 1 Peter 4.3. In the New American Standard Bible, it reads, For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. The emphasis was usually on the drinking parties. I think they were usually prepared to assume that junior high kids either A, knew drunkenness was sinful, or B, were going to do it anyway, so what's the point in trying to talk them out of it? Drinking parties, though, was a battle they thought they could win. The basic argument was, if it was a party, and if there was drinking going on there, that made it a drinking party, and therefore it was sinful. I'm not sure exactly how convincing that argument was back in the day, but since by and large I didn't want to go to drinking parties, and because generally I wasn't invited anyway, I accepted the argument and made it myself when I started preaching. At some point, I decided to get more serious about my Bible study, and I came to grips with the idea that I was not using that passage fairly. Yes, I still oppose what is often called social drinking, but it wasn't because 1 Peter 4.3 condemned it. The argument that I made in my head, the argument I made to my daughters when they were growing up, the argument I still make, is that the road to drunkenness begins with the first drink. Any level of inebriation is too high a level. The more drunk you get, the worse your decision-making gets. The value in the first drink is infinitely exceeded by the consequences that will be avoided by not having the first drink. That's a good argument, as far as I'm concerned. It's not a Bible argument, though. It was convenient having book, chapter, and verse for what I was teaching and practicing. But twisting the Bible to fit my doctrinal position is a bad habit when I condemn and others. And I have to admit, I've never been comfortable condemning someone simply for being in a social setting where alcohol was being served. If you take that position and you're consistent with it, you're the first one I've ever heard of. I'm still opposed to social drinking. I still preach against social drinking. And if I ever hear my daughters are participating in social drinking, we will have a long conversation that no one's going to enjoy. But my argument no longer focuses on 1 Peter 4.3. I'm more likely to bring up passages such as 1 Corinthians 15.33. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. It seems to me the social part of social drinking is brought up as a qualifier, an effort at mitigation. Yes, there's drinking going on, the argument goes, but it's just friends hanging out with friends. But I look at it more as an extension of the problem. You're drinking, and that's bad enough. But beyond that, you're drinking so you'll fit in better with people who entertain themselves by drinking. Is that really something you want to do? The argument for social drinking that's typically made by people in the world is that alcohol loosens people up. Conversation flows more easily. Barriers are lowered. Connections are intensified. In vino veritas and all that. And I'm all in favor of the free flow of information, at least in a general sense. 
We should feel comfortable enough with our friends that we can leave ourselves emotionally vulnerable, at least to a point. But social barriers are in place for a reason. Fellowship has limitations. Some truth is best kept unspoken. Those barriers are what keep conversations about third parties from turning into gossip. They keep so-called innocent flirtation from turning into sexual situations. God gave us natural inhibitions for a reason. Going down an already hazardous path for the purpose of removing those inhibitions sounds like a really bad idea. And if you think I'm making mountains out of molehills, I can't believe I'm about to say this, watch some TV sometime. When was the last time you saw people have an inappropriate sexual encounter when alcohol wasn't involved? Art really does imitate real life. At some point, you need to ask yourself, exactly how close to sinful people do I want to get? Is sticking my nose into their sinful lifestyle a good way to bring them to Jesus? Can I preach self-control and responsibility from a bar stool? Again, going back to 1 Peter 4.3 in its context, fitting in with the sinful world is an inherently awkward thing. It means you're standing for something your sinful friends oppose. That's what following Jesus is all about. So ask yourself the next time your buddy tries to persuade you to have just one beer, just one glass, just one taste. Is what you're about to gain worth what you're about to lose? This is what I've been reading. It was called The Era of Good Feelings. And some Americans thought it was the way our nation was going to be from that point forward. The revolution had been fought and won. A decade had been spent finding our sea legs. And finally, it seemed the American system was working the way George Washington and so many of the other founders had intended. No political wrangling, no party politics. Just Americans coming together on behalf of Americans. Lynn Hudson Parsons tells the story in his book, The Birth of American Politics, of how the era of good feelings came crashing down in a hailstorm of bitterness, name-calling, and the firebombing of decades-long friendships, and how the go-along-get-along vibe associated with this time likely never really existed. True, for the first quarter of the 19th century, we basically only had one real political party. The Federalists, the party of John Adams and sort of kind of the party of George Washington, had become all but extinct on the national stage. All that remained in power were the Thomas Jefferson-styled Democratic Republicans, or just Republicans for short. Jefferson stood for small government, except when he could buy half a continent, personal freedom, limited foreign entanglements, things that pretty much everybody could get behind in philosophy. In practice, though, Southern slave owners, Northern industrialists, and Western expansionists tended to have different plans for achieving the common goal. And we've proven over two and a half centuries that Americans can go to war over small points of distinction just as eagerly and fiercely as we can over larger points. Good thing the church didn't like that, right? But more on that later. Anyway, in 1824, the electorate was split between four Republican candidates. The biggest vote-getter was General Andrew Jackson of Tennessee, the hero of the Battle of New Orleans. Closely behind him was John Quincy Adams of Massachusetts, son of the former president and a former Federalist himself. No one got a majority of the votes in the Electoral College, so the vote went to the House of Representatives. The Speaker of the House was Henry Clay of Kentucky, who finished fourth in the presidential race and therefore was not eligible to participate in the special election. Jackson hated Clay with a passion, and Clay didn't have much use for Jackson either. 
So Clay threw his support to Adams, and Adams pulled out the victory. Then Adams made Clay his Secretary of State, a position widely seen as a gateway to the White House. The previous three presidents and Adams himself had served in that position. Jackson was convinced he had been robbed, and he spent the next four years saying so to whoever would listen. By 1828, the rancor had reached a fever pitch. Partisanship reached an all-time high. Accusations flew in both directions, ranging from bigamy to murder. And in the end, the one who ran the most negative campaign, Jackson, won the election. Elections and the presidency itself have not been the same since. The easiest takeaway from the book is that we can't claim credit in the 21st century for inventing bitter partisanship. But the point I'd like to make regarding churches today, see, I told you I'd get back to it, is that we seem to be somewhat allergic to peace. And that seems odd, given that we are told repeatedly that peace automatically results when we do what Jesus says. James 3.18, for instance, And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. But the context of James 3 helps us understand why the system breaks down on our watch. Too many of our leaders are more interested in self-promotion than presenting the image of Jesus. That's why James says some of them shouldn't be teaching at all. They were using their tongues to sing their own praises more than the praises of their Lord. It's tough to believe now, but before Jackson, the president was not much more than a speed bump to keep Congress in check. Most Americans didn't vote in presidential elections. No one really campaigned for the office. It was beneath the dignity of the office, or so Washington had told us in the beginning. 1828 was the first time more than half of Americans voted for president. And Jackson was the first man to deliberately present himself as their ultimate representative. And we've been eating up that sort of rhetoric ever since. It works in the church, too. Diotrephes appears very Jacksonian, loud, opinionated, authoritarian. King Andrew I, as he was called by some, was good at looking the part and beating up and or shooting anyone who challenged him. But Christians already have a king, and he looks nothing like Andrew Jackson. Apologies to any fans of Old Hickory out there. And those who shepherd in the place of the good shepherd need to act as he acted in all things. The era of good feelings can and will come to a church near you, if leadership cares more about the kingdom than about being a king. This is what I've been hearing. I suppose you could say the first denominations in church history were in Corinth back in Paul's day. We don't know what particularly characterized the Paul party or the Peter party or the Apollos party or the Christ party. What we do know is the Christians there, some of them at least, were willing to watch the Church of Jesus Christ subdivided into separate entities within the body as a whole. Paul opposed this, needless to say. In fact, he rejoiced in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians that he had personally baptized so few of them. Any move away from being the head of a faction was a good move in his mind. However, he went on to say in chapter 11 that factions were necessary, at least after a fashion. He says it's the way you see which Christians are approved. Some will follow after Jesus. Some will follow after someone else. That someone else will call himself a Christian. But that wasn't good enough for Paul. It wasn't good enough for Jesus either. He said in Matthew seven fifteen and 16 that wolves would enter in among the sheep. But he also said we would be able to identify them by their fruits. I realize that wolves don't bear fruit. Jesus mixed his metaphors from time to time, which makes me feel better when I do it. But fruit connects Jesus' point to what Paul writes about fruit in Galatians 5, and 23, 
love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, neither Jesus nor Paul is saying anyone who emphasizes any one of these attributes is necessarily a faithful gospel preacher. But they are both saying that faithful preaching will be rooted there, and that it will avoid the works of the flesh, which include things such as hatreds, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, and envy. Again, just tagging a certain preacher as hateful or selfish doesn't make him a false teacher. We have to pray for wisdom and then make our best judgment which, if any party in the disagreement, is truly on the side of Jesus. This much is certain, though. If two brothers are at war, at least one of them is not on Jesus' side. So what qualifies as a faction? Simply put, it's an affiliation based on a line Jesus has not drawn, or a line he has drawn and someone is trying to erase. And when I say simply put, I'm referring to the rule itself, not our application of it because our application is often anything but simple. I'll describe a couple of examples. This time of year, most of our neighbors celebrate Christmas. Some do it as a particular acknowledgement of the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. Some do it simply as a cultural observance with no particular reference to Jesus. That's a line Jesus did not draw. Paul said in Colossians 2.16, referring to traditional Jewish festivals, that no one should be our judge in such matters. That's about as close as the gospel gets with regard to so-called holidays. I think it's silly and somewhat disturbing that someone should tell me I'm not supposed to talk about Jesus' birth at any time during the year. Then again, the story told in Matthew 1 and Luke 2 has become so convoluted over the years, it's difficult to tell when the good news spoken to shepherds ends and where the mythology begins. If there is no guidance or example of a Christmas celebration, you should let your conscience be your own guide and then let others' consciences do the same. On the other hand, Jesus drew a hard line with regard to marriage and divorce in Matthew 19, verses 3 through 12. You've likely heard as many versions of that doctrine as I have over the years. With regard to that, I'll just say two differing interpretations of his word are not necessarily created equal, and leave it at that for now. But if someone rejects Jesus' words outright, that's another matter entirely. If someone teaches that a man and a man is just as good as a man and a woman, or that divorce is acceptable for any cause, that's nothing short of rebellion. It's the spirit of Antichrist that John writes about in 1 John 2, 18 and 19. Jesus' spokesman preserved his message for all of mankind, for all of time. To depart from that is to depart from Jesus. That's not a faction I made up. That's a fork in the road placed there by God to let you decide who you truly want to follow. May God give you the wisdom to choose well. This is what I've been playing. I mentioned Spyfall back in episode 113 when we were talking about identity. Spyfall is a social deduction game in which you're trying to determine who, if anyone, is the spy at the table. Unless, of course, you are the spy yourself, in which case you're supposed to worm your way into your fellow game player's confidence and go undetected. Or at the very least, figure out the nature of the mission everyone else is on. So everyone goes around the table asking questions of the other players, trying to deduce whether they know the mission. But you don't want the questions to be too leading, or the spy might get the information he needs. For instance, if the mission took us to the circus, and I was playing the part of the lion tamer, and if someone were to ask me if my job was dangerous, I might say something like, 
I'm sure you would think it is, but I've been doing this for a while, and I don't freak out every time I hear a loud noise. I wouldn't want to say, well, I was almost eaten a few months ago, but I managed to shoot my partner, and now his skin is hanging in my trailer. Spyfall is a good game for parties. The less seriously you take it, the more fun everyone has. Take the circus example. What kind of a spy ring would be infiltrating a circus? Why wouldn't I know the identities of all the other agents on the mission with me? And if the spy wants to know where the mission's taking us, why doesn't he just open his own eyes and find out for himself? The more you think about it, the more ridiculous the whole thing gets. Then again, being ridiculous is kind of the point. Charades is the worst possible way to get people to think of a particular book or film. And the more people sit in the corner complaining about how stupid the game is, the worse time is had by everyone. Not the kind of party I want to attend. Certainly not the kind of party I want to host. Spyfall is not my favorite game by a long shot. It's not even in my top five party games. Is that a list you'd like for me to share with you? Feel free to let me know. But I'm glad to play Spyfall if that's the way the group wants to go. I would rather play something that grabs the interest of the group than play the game I like or am likely to win. Yes, you guessed it. I'm lousy at Spyfall. But what difference does it make? A party atmosphere by its very nature considers the atmosphere as a whole and as many individuals in the party as possible. Now, if you have a party, you're likely to have a party pooper. Someone doesn't get his way or her way, and they'll fuss about it until the entire party swings in his or her direction. You love those people, don't you? Wait, let me announce that a bit differently. You love those people, don't you? And since you love them, and since love bears all things, 1 Corinthians 13.7, you'll find a way to accommodate them. It's not the most fun part of the party, but it might be the most important. Say you're having the members of the church over for a football-watching party. Most of the anti-football types will just stay home, and that's fine, no hard feelings. But some will not want to miss out on the camaraderie, so they'll come anyway. If they're merely uninitiated, they may ask a lot of questions that you think are silly. If they're rude, they may make some jokes at your favorite team's expense, just to get under your skin. For the latter individuals, perhaps a polite but direct intervention may become necessary. But more often than not, it's better to take the opportunity to build a bridge than help your annoying friends set fire to one. Find a way to bring people together instead of fracturing them. After all, that's why you're throwing the party in the first place. Yielding in matters like these is good. It draws you nearer to the cross where Jesus suffered for you so you could make yourself at home. So be respectful. Remember whose house this is. Jesus is throwing the party. You're just an invitee. Wipe your feet on the way in. Say please and thank you. And look for opportunities to welcome other guests who may seem a bit out of place. If they break some of the house rules, remember 1 Peter 4, 8. Love covers a multitude of sins. Jesus has certainly covered plenty of yours. Thank you for listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Please rate, review, and share so others can access this content. I encourage you also to join the Heaven Citizens Facebook group. There you will find links to related materials, conversation starters, poll questions, and the occasional special announcement. Also, check out the Hal Hammonds channel on YouTube for even more content. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, Citizen of Heaven, signing off.